to explain the background, the context, and the, the situation that was occurring during Machen's time was that uh, conservatives were able in good conscience to confess the standards of the church, believing that the confession of faith and catechisms of the church were biblical, while the liberal confessed the faith but didn't really believe the standards. So, so that was the major issue, was that ministers were taking vows when they didn't really believe what the church believed. Okay, and this is the reason why we have confessions and catechisms, is to lay out what the church believes, right, so that we have consistency in our ministry. Um, and there were ministers who were subscribing, didn't really believe in the, uh, uh, the confession of faith and catechisms. As I've mentioned before, um, we, when I take my um, ordination exams, both in my licensure and my ordination, they asked a, 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 a kind of almost like a trick question. Do you believe the confession and catechisms, um, do you subscribe to the confession and catechisms because they are biblical or insofar as they are biblical? Meaning you have the right to choose what parts are biblical and what parts are not, right? You kind of stand as a judge over the confession and catechisms. Um, and the right answer for uh, ordination is because they're biblical, not insofar as they're biblical. Uh, because what the liberal wanted, he, they wanted, uh, and, and the moderates, they wanted the liberty to decide whether or not the confessions were biblical. Right? They wanted the liberty individually to decide. But that's not how it goes in, in, in a confessional church. Um, see, unlike uh, the broader evangelical conservative churches, the liberal problem didn't begin with an attack on the Bible. In confessional churches, which the PCA used to be, it began with an attack on the confessional standards of the church before the liberals would attack uh, the truthfulness of Scripture. And in that attack, it came from both moderates and liberals. So you can see with the conservative uh, the one who uh, holds to the confession and catechism, they were in the minority. They were at a loss. Um, but this is what we stand for. Uh, the most dangerous thing to do in a situation like this is try to force a unity that is not clearly there. And that's what Machen is saying. Why force a unity that's not there? Well, we believe in different doctrines. Uh, for example, there are, and this is not a clear cut example. This is not a one-to-one -one example here. You know, uh, we're dealing with Christians. Uh, but there are more popular preachers who will avoid certain texts of Scripture to avoid offending people in the congregation who are staunch in their positions. Uh, I know of a congregation out west. I won't mention the pastor's name. Uh, the pastor is very influential, even in my ministry, uh, but he is a, what you would call a Reformed Baptist. And um, when it comes to those texts that distinguish between Baptists and Presbyterians, he'll avoid them because he knows that his congregation is mixed between Baptists and Presbyterians. My conviction is that you can't avoid those texts. You have to preach the word. 
and you have to preach your conviction on those texts, whether it offends people or not. Now, we're not saying at all that Baptists are not Christians. They are our brothers and sisters. And there's uh, certain levels uh, of, uh, of separation that we have where we can still consider uh, Baptists our brothers and sisters. But here Machen, on a more extreme level, is saying the, the one who be- believes liberal doctrine is not even a brother or sister in Christ. And we can't avoid uh, causing offense when it comes to the gospel. We can avoid causing offense over minor things, but not when it comes to the truthfulness of Scripture and to the truthfulness of the gospel. Um, I've witnessed this even in seminary. Uh, Someone who attended the same church as I did, uh, it was an OP church. Uh, He was a staunch uh, Reformed Baptist. And after two years of attending the same church, he eventually came to the conviction he cannot attend anymore. Because some of the texts that, there are more texts than that he thought there were. It wasn't just on baptism that there was a clear difference. That might not be the case for you if you're a Baptist, uh, because there are different, there are even different forms of Baptists. So, I mean, once you get into that, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to go on and on about it. He was of one form of Baptist. I think they call it New Covenant Theology, where uh, the Old Covenant, you're saved by works, and the New Covenant, you're saved by grace. Right? No, that, that's not. There are Reformed Baptists who don't believe that. So, so I think that's how, how, how different it was, and he couldn't be there anymore. But anyway, but you see, you can't avoid, when preaching the scripture, you can't avoid giving offense to some who have difference of opinion. Never mind for those who are not even Christians. You can't avoid giving offense when preaching the gospel. And separation sometimes is the only option you have. If the, if the denomination is going liberal and it's on that trajectory and you can't stop it, there's, there's no choice. You have no choice. Um, so, uh, and again, th- this is so important to know as a background, is that Machen knew liberalism. He knew it firsthand. He is not uh, approaching this with a blank slate. He knew liberalism firsthand. He, uh, his doctorate was at a liberal seminary in Germany. And all of his professors were liberal. Remember I mentioned that um, most of his professors, he would say, they were more godly in their actions and in their character than the conservatives he knew. Yet they didn't believe what the Bible said, right? So, um, and this goes to show that what Machen is saying here, he's not just, you know, giving criticism without having a background. He knew the doctrine. He studied there for years before um, he got his PhD. And and you should probably ask the question, I know a list of uh, both OP ministers and other good sound ministers who get their PhDs at liberal seminaries. You often wonder why. Why would you go to Yale or Harvard or uh, uh, Princeton to get your PhD? Well, they have the best libraries. I think that's really the reason, because your PhD is mostly self-study. You have kind of an advisor, uh, but they have the best libraries. And you can interact with these liberal teachings and uh, uh, 
write some pretty good papers. So anyway, um, uh, but you see, today uh, I think it's different than Machen's day. In Machen's day, uh, you had the rise of you know teachings like evolution. You had uh, a lot of ammunition on the side of uh, liberal uh, teaching, where today I believe uh, the liberal church is losing ammunition. They don't have the ammunition they had in the early 1900s. They're at a loss today. Um, given the rise of so many, thousands and thousands, we're talking in the hundreds of thousands of manuscripts that have been found that support the authenticity of the New Testament since Machen's time, right? And now the liberal is losing ammunition. The best thing they could come up with these days, I think, in my observation, is that you know the Bible was given to us by aliens. I mean, really, that's what we're seeing in a lot of these history. This is history? This is the best you can come up with? That aliens gave us the Bible? And that the God of the Bible was really an alien? And as you, and this is why expositional preaching is so important, as you exposit one text at a time, it disproves all of these claims. It just blows up in their face, especially those texts that talk about God being invisible, uh, unseen, uh, dwelling in unapproachable light, with no body, no parts, no passions. Okay? So um, we have hope in the scriptures, is what I'm trying to say. We have hope in our Christian faith. Our Christian faith has stood the test of time. They are out of ammunition today. So in some ways, we are not in the same place as Machen. We're probably in a better place, historically speaking. And I think this is why. This is why there's such a violent uprising against Christianity today. Because the ammunition's gone. What does a pouting child do when he realizes he has no ammunition against his brother or sister? Right? He's going to pound and slam stuff and break stuff and try to hurt his sibling, right? Um, and the liberal is not really the sibling, but anyway. Uh, so this is, um, this is uh, uh, very important to know as we get to our sixth point, which is, I, I believe, under part two. They will ask the question. Uh, this is liberal, liberals as, as, uh, as well as moderates will ask the question, but isn't separation being intolerant? Right? Is it being intolerant? In the church and in our daily lives, we are to express certain levels of tolerance for one another. That's biblical. Tolerance is a biblical category. And we all express a certain level of tolerance. If we didn't, we wouldn't survive. Right? If we didn't have a level of tolerance for one another, we wouldn't survive neither as a group nor as a church. Now think about it. We would be constantly at each, other, at each other's throats or completely isolated from one another or from society. So there is a level of tolerance expected among Christians, whether living in the world or even in the church. Paul expected a level of tolerance for one another, and this is best expressed in his uh, chapters on Christian liberty and Christian freedom. 
Um, and you can even go to um, his letter, letters to the Corinthians. But there were other things that Paul and the other apostles were intolerant of. of. Uh, for example, sinful and unrepentant lifestyles among Christians and false teaching in the church. I mean, we're going through the Galatians, uh, letter to the Galatians right now and we see that. Paul was intolerant of false teaching, right? And he expected the Galatians to be intolerant of false teaching. Because the question that comes from some when we say that we must separate from liberals, isn't that being intolerant? Now, this is where he distinguishes between voluntary and involuntary organizations. Involuntary organizations should be tolerant but not voluntary organizations, right? Involuntary organizations should be tolerant, but voluntary organizations should not. Once a voluntary organization, an organization that you have the freedom to choose whether or not you want to be a part of, like the church, once that organization becomes tolerant, he says it has lost its purpose. Because that organization was founded on a message, not other messages, not a multitude of messages. While the state, for an example, is an involuntary organization. You can't choose whether or not you are part of the state. When you're born, you're part of the state. You're part of the system. You can't choose to exclude yourself unless you're Amish. Amish, I mean, I guess. But all of us are part of it, whether you like it or not. So there should be tolerance over differences. Or that organization or the state will not last for very long. There will be war very soon if there is intolerance from the state. And within the state, the citizens should have the freedom to be part of voluntary associations such as the church. And the state ought to be required to protect the rights of individuals to unite for any religious purpose, pur purpose which they may choose, right? So the involuntary organization, which is one that we can't choose, the state, should protect the rights of those to join a voluntary association, like the church, right? Um, and since the church is voluntary, you choose to be here, no one forced you to be here, the church then decides what it should be intolerant of. We decide, right? Uh, mainly in our case, it would be false teaching. We are not tolerant of false teaching in the church. Uh, we come to a certain agreement, right? If you want to become a member of the church, you come to a certain agreement of a certain message about Christ and the proclamation of that message as it is set forth in our creeds and confessions which are all based on the message of the Bible and no one forced anyone to unite to us and no one should. Now why would someone who doesn't believe in the ag agreement join the church and try to proclaim or promote their false religion? You have the liberty to join a liberal church if that's what you believe. Or you could start your own. This is what Machen is arguing. Why force a unity that is not there? Why join a church and try to teach in that church what is exactly contrary to what she believes? 
He says it is blatant dishonesty. I was think about, thinking about it yesterday. Uh, we can say this about politics, right? S- specifically politics in the U.S. If you take a vow to uphold the Constitution, it means you believe what that Constitution says. Personally, I believe there is one interpretation to that Constitution. And if you don't believe in it, why take the vow? There are some who say they believe in freedom of religion, but they say it's, well, only for Christians. That's not what it says. So when you take a vow, you're taking a vow to protect the rights of Muslims, Christians, Jews, and everyone else. And if you find that inconsistent with your Christian conviction, don't become a politician in the U.S. It's pretty simple. And the same goes for the church. It's dishonesty. They can say of us that we are being intolerant, but we can say of them that they are being dishonest. He says, yet it is exactly this course of action that is advocated by those who would allow non-doctrinal religion be taught in the name of doctrinal churches or doctrinal churches. I don't know how you pronounce that. I had a British pastor before, so it kind of confuses me sometimes. Uh, um, So those who are joining doctrinal churches are joining believing in non-doctrinal religion. What's important is unity, not doctrine. My argument would be, as you've been hearing it for the last almost year now, is that our unity is founded upon a doctrine. Okay? The doctrine comes first. That's the foundation. And we are united based on that. Nowhere in the scripture, nowhere does Paul say we are allowed to compromise on doctrine for the sake of love and unity. Okay? But we are to show tolerance in the lesser things which we will have to identify, right? Food and drink, right? We're not going to argue over those things. We're not going to divide over food and drink or, or even what someone wears as long as he or she is covered up, right? That's what we care about. Uh, uh, and, and it's decent. It's not distracting, right? We're not going to divide over the lesser things, But the more important things remain more important. It's like one preacher says, the main things are the main things and the minor things are the minor things and the lesser things we should just not fight over. Right? And once you come to an agreement and join a church that subscribes to a certain system of doctrine or confession, you can't at the same time be an advocate of a non-doctrinal religion. Things will fall apart very quickly, especially if you're in a minister's position. If you come to ordination, you're about to be ordained as a minister, and yet you don't believe in the standards, at some point, you need to tell someone. And you need to work that out. And if it is not reconcilable, you need to go somewhere else. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple. We're not being intolerant, but that's just, that's just the way it is. We have a certain doctrine, and if you don't follow these steps, things are going to fall apart in your church, whatever that church may be. How many churches have left the OPC? Uh, Because pastors go in uh, with a different vision of what worship is, right? Maybe a more contemporary view, and they don't hold to the views of our church, 
And eventually that church leaves the OPC and joins a denomination that's more in line with their beliefs. Um, and it's a sad thing when it causes church splits. And it's traumatic. It's traumatic on a congregation. And it lasts for decades. Week in and week out, you're going to hear doctrine. And how that doctrine applies to your life. This is why we try to instill in the coming generation. Know what you believe. Know what you believe. And know what we teach here. Don't just become part of something because this is how you grew up. Or this is where your family always came. Right? Know what you believe. Because eventually, uh, you must come to grips with what it is you actually believe. Uh, Machen clearly is calling for honesty in the church. And then uh, the next point, which is a funny point, he talks about the church shrinkage program, right? Or the church shrinkage movement. Uh, When we are honest, when we're honest with ourselves and honest with others, it will become a church shrinkage program. Machen says that if we separate from liberals in the church or liberals separate from us, this will shrink the church. Now, this was the main concern of the moderates in Machen's day. If we take a hard stance on doctrine and the Bible, the liberals are just going to leave the church. I would have asked, well, what's the problem? What's the problem? If you want to remain faithful to scriptures, more times than not, you will be part of a small gathering. Right? More times than not. Maybe, not. maybe not if you go down south. But up here, especially in the north, you're most likely going to be part of a small gathering. Of the average OP church is made up of only 60 members. That's the average number. Once you hit 80 and over, you have become an OP megachurch. Right? Uh, I think we're almost there. We're almost there. We, we might get there. Uh, once I, I became a minister, I, I was told by many mentors, my main concern going into the ministry is faithfulness to the scriptures, not to numbers. Numbers are good, and it's great when people are coming through those doors, they hear the word, and they believe it, and they stay. But numbers are not the main concern. It shouldn't be the main concern for any of us. But faithfulness to what is being preached. Numbers are always going to fluctuate. That's something we must come to grips with as a church. People will leave for various reasons. Doctrinal differences. Some will die. Some will realize they don't believe any of this and they go somewhere else after years of attendance. That is the nature of ministry. But what I have been charged with and what our session has been charged with is to make, not to make sure that the church looks good, right? By having a lot of people here. But I, we have been entrust, entrusted and charged with remaining faithful to the great commission that our Lord gave us, whether people receive it or not, okay? It's not up to us to force people to believe. It's up to us to try to convince, to persuade. But at the end of the day, you can't control the reception. Only the Spirit can do that. No doubt, our desire is that more and more come to faith and we are commissioned to bring the message of the gospel to them. 
our desire is to have this mini megachurch, of course. We want more people saved to the glory of God. We want to see that glory shine in the salvation of souls because that's how it does shine. But we can't control the outcome. What we do know is that the gospel is to be propagated by the church in all her ministries. This is the mission of the church. And the Christian man has a duty to contribute to these agencies or these ministries of the church. But what happens, like in Machen's time, what happens when you find false teaching in the church? What happens when you find liberalism being promoted hand in hand with the gospel? Do you continue to support the mission of this particular church or do you withdraw? Uh, Here, he had in mind the Foreign Missions Board of the PCUSA. That's where the problems really started for Machen. Uh, This is what led him to find an independent Foreign Missions Board. Uh, They said they believed in the cross of Christ, but at the same time they were saying, it's not all, all that important. It's not that important. So they affirmed the truths of the Gospels for those who want to hear that and said the Gospel is not as important as humanitarianism in poor countries when others didn't want to hear the Gospel. So, right? It's almost like they, they preached the Gospel when people wanted to hear it and those who didn't really care for that, they said, well, we just need help physically and you know, if you build us a, a, a water main or whatever the case is, that's what we want, okay? So they were uh, catering the message to the people rather than preaching the gospel that was commissioned to them. So how could you support this sort of mission is what he is asking. When it's gone to that point, do you only donate to gospel ministry and not designate the funds to more liberal efforts within the denomination? The unfortunate thing is that it, it, it's hard to uh, separate the two because they all fall under one, of, one umbrella of the church, truthfully. It's hard to separate those two things. Okay. Uh, I think the OPC has a good balance of preaching the gospel uh, while the deacons care for uh, the needs of the church and the community, uh, whatever they may be, uh, especially in foreign missions. We, we do a pretty good job and we have a good track record in doing that. But how could we fix this problem? The problem in Machen's day. Do Presbyterians resort to congregationalism? Right? Where each congregation is responsible for her own doctrine and mission works? Uh, This wouldn't work. Uh, Because uh, think of the funds needed to support a foreign mission work. Congregations would have to unite to get this done. You would eventually have to unite with other congregations that you don't even know of. You don't know (laughs) their core teachings Uh, unless you do some uh, investigating and digging, and who knows what direction they're heading into before you would support a foreign missions work. This is why Presbyterianism is so important. And the question is whether truly Christian congregations could ever support a mission that seems just a tad bit liberal. Uh, You gotta gotta deal with that question on your own. Um, That's, again, important. Our Presbyterian form of government Holding each other accountable for what we teach and preach is important. Um, I am held accountable not only by you and not only by the session, but by my brothers in, say, Rochester or Syracuse or in Cape Cod, right? 
if I'm, my teaching is off, I will be called out on it. And the same goes for me and them as well. This is why it's so important. And the same goes with foreign missions. We want to know what is being preached and taught so we can hold each other accountable. We, we have a missionary now in China who reached out to our presbytery to hold him accountable in doctrine and life. Because he, he recognizes how important that is, that he's not straying from the gospel, and that he's, he's staying on the narrow path. And this is what Machen is vouching for. Uh, unfortunately, Presbyterianism doesn't guard all the time from human depravity, and it was going down the tubes. Um, and he continues to argue that, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to finish it this week. Sorry. Uh, he continues to argue liberalism is a different religion because he will go on to make his famous statement once again, as he made toward the beginning of the book, that Christianity is not the same religion as liberalism. Christian liberalism is an oxymoron. It's a heresy. But not only that, it's a different religion altogether. You have many churches that have the name churches outside, but they're not churches. They can put the word church in their, uh, on their bulletin, uh, bulletin boards or their um, signs out front, but it is a totally different religion. I have concluded that romanticism, uh, romanticism is a philosophy, um, I believe came up in the 18th century uh, into the 19th century where it was based solely on experience and you get the word romantic from it, so it's based solely on emotions. Uh, and pietism, which I believe is kind of the father of romanticism, uh, which started in the church, uh, had a big impact on some of the key leaders of liberalism. So pietism is the father or grandfather of liberalism. And pietism emphasizes a heart religion at the expense of doctrine. Okay, We promote a heart religion in the church, but not at the expense of doctrine. Okay? They are tied together. All right? it's, it, we, we are to have a warm, heartfelt religion tied to sound doctrine. This is what we've always believed as Presbyterians, going back to the Puritans. They believed in a heartfelt religion tied to sound, clear doctrine. But when pietism came along, it was heartfelt religion at the expense of doctrine. Right? You can believe in sound doctrine and yet uh, be unbelieving. That was their uh, greatest concern. So it's not about knowing doctrine. It is about feeling and experience. Machen says, it's not even that. Liberalism was not even that. Honestly, they weren't even that. Because listening to liberal preaching all those years, he recognized that in the preaching, they were untroubled by the problem of sin. At least in pietism, they were troubled about sin, right? They were devoid of all sympathy for guilty humanity. And they were prone to abuse and ridicule the things dearest to the heart of every Christian man. The fall of man and the redemption of man in Christ. They were denying this from the pulpit. So where is this so-called heart, 
heartfelt religion, he asks. Where is the so-called compassion when you are not even troubled by sin? He says they don't need to just change their minds about doctrine. They need a heart change. That's why he says it's a different religion. Their hearts need to be changed by the powerful working of the Spirit. So what is our duty? And this is, um, I might finish it. I don't don't know. (laughs) I got a few points here. But what is our duty in response to liberalism or false teaching in general in the church? What is the duty of lay members and other officers in the church? First, we are to encourage those who are engaged in intellectual and spiritual struggle. Right? To those who are doubting. We are to encourage those who are doubting. Help them. Because we're not here just to spread the message of the gospel. We're also here to to defend the message of the gospel. This requires not just fighting off attacks, but also unfolding the beautiful truth of the gospel and what the scriptures reveal. Uh, I love receiving questions, by the way. Don't ever feel intimidated or discouraged to ask me questions, right? Send me an email, give me a call, uh, ask me after the service. Unless, of course, you know what my answer is going to be and, and it's not going to change your mind because you're set in your ways and you're just trying to pick a fight. In that case, don't, don't, don't ask any questions. Uh, that is deceptive and it reaches to a point, I'll just ignore you. But I get emails all the time and I love answering sometimes difficult questions that people have, even if I have to research it for myself. And it is part of encouraging one another when we are receiving an onslaught of misguided and false teaching, false information all the time. When we're living in the world, we're we're receiving an onslaught of these things every day. So it's important that members of the church or non-members, whoever you are, to ask questions. Because that's what we're here to do. We're here to encourage one another in the faith so that we can keep walking. And we need to be equipped to defend the gospel. Second, Christian officers in the church should perform their duty in deciding upon the qualifications of candidates for the ministry. If you don't remember, this was the problem that divided the Presbyterian church during the first great awakening. Uh, Those in favor of the awakening, the Tennant brothers, for example, did not appreciate being grilled during ordination exams. While those who were not in favor of the new measures of the first great awakening required that new ministers subscribe to the confession and catechisms of the church. And this is for the protection of the church and the protection of doctrine. Because all candidates for ministry must ask the question, for Christ or against him? In all of our confession and catechisms, they're all linked together. You can't just you know, pluck one out uh, and say th- this is not that important. Um, but for the liberal, they prefer to ordain someone first, then send them out to learn and to preach. It was kind of backwards. They were pu- putting the horse, the, the cart before the horse, right? The training comes first. 
Then there is an examination before someone can be ordained and installed into ministry. And one of the big problems uh, during um, Machen's time was that elders and pastors were not going to presbytery meetings. That was one of the big causes, or this is what caused liberal, uh, the doors to open to, to liberalism. The presbyters, the elders and ministers, did not go to presbytery or general assembly. Uh, all elders at some point, I'm not saying every time, but all elders should at some point attend presbytery to see what's going on and to hear what's going on. Because uh, liberalism or any kind of false teaching can easily slip in. Um, to reassure you, on the point of doctrine, I believe our presbytery is pretty strong. Uh, as, as of right now. Um, so uh, Machen's fear was that if you did as the liberals suggested, right, to take it easy on ordination exams, then you'll have another enemy of the gospel in the church teaching false doctrine, encouraging sinners to come before the judgment seat of God clad in the miserable rags of their own righteousness. Now, this is not very kind. He says, this is not very kind to the candidate. It is not very kind to encourage someone to enter into a life of dishonesty. Right? The best option is to find a place where you fit in. If someone cannot accept the teaching of a particular church, he should go elsewhere. For example, like I said, we subscribe to our confessions and uh, catechisms of the OPC. And there will never be any, as Machen says, there will never be a warmth of communion or engagement with any real vigor in any of her work until her ministers are in a wholehearted agreement with that belief. But in the interest of an utterly false kindness to men, Christians are sometimes willing to relinquish their loyalty to the crucified Lord we got to think about that very carefully. Are we willing to relinquish our loyalty to the crucified Lord for the sake of not giving offense to those who believe in false doctrine? Thirdly, Christian officers in the church should show their loyalty to Christ in their capacity as members of the individual congregations. Here he is speaking specifically when doing a pastoral search it is not enough to find a pastor for your church who does not deny the cross of Christ right it's not enough oh he doesn't deny it but does he affirm it is he devoted to it he says many people are perishing under the preaching of men who do not deny the cross of Christ but they never preach the cross of Christ right it's mostly legalism and moralism coming from the pulpits. You want a pastor who preaches the cross of Christ, the cross over all of his sermons. And this is what shapes his ministry, is the cross. If you don't have the cross in the ministry, it's not a true Christian ministry. Again, it's a theology of glory not the cross. 
Fourthly and lastly, and most importantly, there must be a renewal of Christian education. Right? The rejection of Christianity is due to various causes. But he says a very potent cause is simple ignorance. Many people reject Christianity simply because they don't know what Christianity is all about. Many people in churches go to church each Sunday with little to no desire to deepen their faith nor deepen their knowledge of their faith. This may be one of the biggest discouragements for pastors and elders. It is when people begin to have itching ears, seeking out teachers who will cater to their own desires. But he gets into a little bit about the education system and how it is flawed. Uh, Schools are emphasizing methodology over content, what is materially useful at the expense of uh, the high spiritual heritage of mankind. Uh, This is speaking of uh, the human spirit or individual personality, right? At the expense of individual personality, uh, the education is only concerned with methods, right? And we see where this problem has led us as a nation. But this is not where all the blame is. It is not found in the education system. Rather, it is found in the belief that is that Christianity is a life and not also a doctrine. If Christianity is not a doctrine, then you don't need teachers or preachers teaching the people. So for Machen, the remedy is to double down on teaching. We need to double down on teaching when people don't want to hear it. We need to say pastorally, I don't care if you don't want to hear it. You're going to hear it again this week. Because if not, we're losing souls. We're doubling down on teaching when people are asking for other things. Keep teaching whether they want to hear it or not. What, What did Paul say to Timothy? Teach, rebuke, in season and out of season. Teach the scriptures. We are to teach in our families. We are to teach in our churches. In any other organization that we can use. He says, Christian education is the chief business of the hour for every earnest Christian. Why? Because there are many who have joined the ministry that reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This was at his time, and I believe... The history repeats itself, right? People will join ministry that do not believe the gospel. And they got in by saying that they just had a difference of interpretation. Right? It's just a slight difference. A slight difference. And you know the snowball effect after that. Machen said, no, we're not on the same team. We need to separate from this teaching. And I'm going to try to finish this because I only have a couple more quotes and then we're done. Uh, So this will be a a little bit longer than usual. But he reminds us, even with all this trouble in the church, the Christian life has no room for despair. Right? The Christian life has no room for despair. We have the solid foundation of the Word of God where we find the precious promises of God. What did we hear this morning about Abraham? receiving the word of God and his promises, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We have 
the promises of God in the scripture. And we should all, minister and member alike, spend our days with a new earnestness in the study of that word. He says, if the word of God be heeded, the Christian battle will be fought both with love and with faithfulness. Party passions and personal animosities will be put away. But on the other hand, even angels from heaven will be rejected if they preach a gospel different from the blessed gospel of the cross. Every man must decide upon which side he will stand. The future is always unclear, but God has not deserted his church. He has not left his church alone. Throughout church history, there have been similar battles fought. And liberalism, he says, is just a new legalism, which in in response needs a new reformation. It's the same legalism that was fought against in the Middle Ages, being fought against today. And although our souls are tried, we must rely upon our Savior to do what he has called us to do in a timely manner. This is why the church needs to continue to contend for the faith that was given to the saints. But whatever the solution may be, he asks this question. And we should ask this of ourselves. Is there a place where Christians can gather in the name of Christ to give thanks and praise to their God? Because it is only this group or gathering that can satisfy the needs of the soul. The great longing of the soul is the deep longing of fellowship with other believers. There are true gatherings led by true pastors and ministers preaching the gospel. But unfortunately, true churches are hard to find. Now, there are many other gatherings that parade themselves as churches, but they are no churches at all. I'll quote Machen because this is such a great quote, and I think it's in your handout. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into the church to seek refreshment of the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often, one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward, not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far in the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions or options about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin. Such is the sermon. And then perhaps... The service is closed by one of those hymns breathing out the angry passions of 1861. He has here in mind the battle hymn of the Republic, which are to be found in the back back part of the hymnals. Thus the warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God. And sad indeed is the heart of man who has come seeking peace. And he closes his book with the hope that there are true churches out there, that there are churches that provide rest for the weary souls of sinners seeking salvation. He says, is there no refuge from strife? 
Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race? To forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial life, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. And we have now come to the end of Christianity and liberalism after a long a long study in it. Thankful for that. Thankful for Machen's leadership Thankful for what he founded. As I've said, he was a, a leader of mine, uh, 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 a hero of mine. Um, and um, even though we, I have my differences with him um, on various points, uh, I guess regarding politics and society, but nonetheless, he can still be a hero in the church, right? Um, we don't have to accept everything. But on this, on the fundamental doctrines of the faith, he got it right. And we see a lot of what he said unfolding today, even in conservative churches.